This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How's it going, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of the Arm Scholar podcast. Uh, like I mentioned, I'm going to try to do these every single week, uh, release them Monday mornings. I, I put out a poll over on YouTube. Um, I was asking you guys what would be the best time that you guys thought and it seemed like the overwhelming majority actually picked for 7 a.m. on Mondays. So that's what it's going to be. Um, it seems like the reception for the la- last podcast was a lot better than I had hoped for, especially over on the second YouTube channel. Um, it seemed like a ton of people watched it over there, and I really do appreciate it. Like I said, this was something that I wanted to do for a really long time. I wanted to get the podcast going, but just with life and work and with the YouTube channel, it, it kind of got put to the wayside, but now I really want to dedicate some extra time, whatever little extra time I have uh, in my life, which really right now is not a lot. Um, want to dedicate it to the podcast and give you guys some longer form discussions. Um, if you didn't listen to the last podcast, the last podcast, we talked about some of the highs and lows of last year, 2022. And actually for this podcast, what I want to talk about is something that has developed over the last week um, since we put out the last podcast. Um, I kind of mentioned a little bit in the last podcast um, alluding to some of the things that would be happening with the Fifth Circuit and the upcoming ruling in the Cargill case. And we actually received a decision from the Fifth Circuit. Uh, the Fifth Circuit en banc panel in the case Cargill versus Garland, the ATF, uh, they issued a ruling. And it was one of the more positive rulings that we've received in a long time in regards to the Second Amendment. I know a lot of people were very surprised by a lot of the language that the Fifth Circuit en banc panel included in that decision. So in this podcast, I wanted to go a little bit more in depth about that decision some of the ramifications coming out of that, as well as um, maybe some things that may change going forward and maybe what the outlook is for other types of issues in regards to the ATF, like the ATF's looming pistol brace rule, um, their rule on frames and receivers, maybe how this will impact that, as well as what maybe is going to happen now after the Fifth Circuit en banc panel has ruled and maybe what is going to happen as far as maybe the Supreme Court hearing this issue. So let's just kind of dive right into this. The first thing I kind of want to just talk about is the decision itself. So if you're not aware, this last week um, of me recording this podcast, the Fifth Circuit en banc panel issued a 13 to 3 decision. Now, a little bit of procedural background for maybe those who are listening who don't fully understand what, what I mean when I say on bonk panel. I know some people hear me say that a lot in videos, but maybe you don't understand what that really means. What the on bonk panel is and what the Fifth Circuit on bonk panel is, it is the highest level of circuit court of appeals for the Fifth Circuit. The United States of America is split into a bunch of different circuit courts. Um, the one that we talk quite a bit about on the channel is the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit is responsible for states like California, Washington, Oregon, Hawaii, states like that. So that's why we talk quite a bit about the Ninth Circuit and also because the Ninth Circuit has been very anti-gun and also deals with a lot of the anti-gun state laws. So that's why we talk a lot about the Ninth Circuit. Here we're talking about the Fifth Circuit, which is responsible for states like the, like the state of Texas. And that's where this Cargill case was originally filed in, I believe. Here, when you're talking about the en banc panel, what that means is it's made its way through the process. It's made its way through the district court. It's made its way before the Fifth Circuit three-judge panel, which is the next level. And then it was elevated all the way up to the en banc panel. Now, every circuit court kind of operates their en banc panel different. The Ninth Circuit um, has, I believe, um, off the top of my head, I can't remember right now, but I think it's... 13 judges, uh, and one of those is including the chief judge. 
The Fifth Circuit en banc panel here, I believe, was 16, and it ended up being a 13 to 3 vote. Um, and the question for review for this en banc panel really was in regards to the ATF. Did the ATF overreach their authority when they issued this final rule on bump stocks? If you don't recall, um, this bump stock issue arose out of the recent shooting in Las Vegas. Um, a lot of you are very familiar with that. It had to do with the concert shooting. Um, I'm not going to go deep into details or anything like that. If you want more information on that, you can find it somewhere else. But this issue really arose out of that. There was a ton of calls for gun control measures after that incident. And then you had then President Trump get behind this push uh, also in association with the NRA, which is surprising because the NRA is supposed to be, you know, pro-gun. They're supposed to be our advocacy group, but they actually worked in conjunction with President Trump and also the anti-gun agenda to get the ATF to ban bump stocks. Now, how they did this was in a very interesting way. And this was kind of the originator of this new push that we see the ATF do quite often now. What they did is they did this through essentially regulatory fiat. And that was actually some of the language that was used by the Fifth Circuit en banc panel here in this Cargill case. What the ATF did is they went into the regulatory definition of what a machine gun is. And they tried to say that under the regulatory definition of a machine gun, well, actually under the statutory definition of a machine gun under the GCA, they believed that bump stocks, that piece of plastic on its own is actually a machine gun. And therefore under the text of the GCA, they have authority to regulate them as machine guns and therefore ban them. And then they issued their rule saying that yes, indeed they believe these to be machine guns that you must destroy them or surrender them over to the ATF. And if you didn't, then you would get hit with a 10 year um, central criminal liability uh, imprisonment or $250,000 fine. So there was some serious implications because you could be found in possession of a machine gun in violation of the GCA. So it was very serious things. And a lot of people during that time period didn't think that it was a major issue because I know a lot of people don't own bump stocks. They never have owned bump stocks. They have no interest in owning bump stocks. Um, I'm kind of one of those people. Um, I don't find them a very useful tool, but that doesn't mean I believe no one should have access to them. I believe under the second amendment, you have the right to bear whatever arm you want. Um, but a lot of people, you know, didn't think it was that big of an issue, but what the bump stock issue really did is it opened the door and it was kind of the first foot in the door for the ATF to do these types of actions. After getting this final rule on bump stocks instituted, then later years, you saw the ATF starting to do other things like their attacks on homemade suppressors, like their attacks on force reset triggers, saying that the force reset triggers from companies like Rare Breed and Big Daddy Unlimited those triggers on their own um, under the ATF's belief are in fact machine guns in their own right as well. Then you had the whole frames and receivers rule that was instituted and went into effect this August and is currently part of a bunch of litigation. And then you also have the looming pistol brace rule, which again is a direct result of the ATF getting their foot in the door for the first time with this bump stock ban. Um, so that kind of sets the groundwork of what this case really was about, what was at stake with this case. Now, there was some interesting arguments really leading up to this decision by the Fifth Circuit, and there was quite a bit of questions about maybe what the Fifth Circuit would do in regards to their interpretation of the GCA. Um, would they buy the ATF's argument that the term machine gun in the GCA does in fact encompass devices like bump socks. Now, ultimately, if you read the Cargill decision, what they said is no. They believe that the GCA's definition of machine gun is in fact very, very clear. It is a very clear statutory definition. And reading that very clear statutory definition, they found that items like bump stocks, these pieces of plastic, are not encompassed by that definition. They are not included in that definition. 
Therefore, under the clear text of the GCA's language, bump stocks are not machine guns, and therefore the ATF does not have the power to regulate these items because the ATF in its own right only has the ability to regulate things in which they have power to regulate. If the GCA says that they have the power to regulate firearms, they only have the right to regulate firearms. If it says they have the power to regulate machine guns, they only have power to regulate machine guns, which are clearly defined in that statute. And the clear definition of machine gun in the statute does not encompass bump stocks. Therefore, they have no authority to regulate those items. So this is one of those things where it comes down to what type of regulatory powers and authority does an agency really have? Um, and the kind of first step when you look at this lawsuit, it had to do with, you know, was the term machine gun ambiguous or was it clear? And here, the Fifth Circuit en banc panel found that it was very clear. And this also, and I've never really talked about this a lot in videos, this really has to do with how this was argued by the ATF. Um, when it comes to some lawsuits, you will have government agencies argue that a statute is ambiguous and therefore under things like Chevron deference, uh, they have the ability to interpret the uh, ambiguous term or statute however they see fit. That is not what the ATF actually did here. In this lawsuit, the ATF took the position that the term is actually clear but they took the position that it was clear kind of in their favor. They said that it was clear in a way that the definition of the GCA would in fact include bump stocks. So you can see how there was these kind of combating arguments. You had the ATF saying the statute is very clear. The term of the definition machine gun is very clear and it includes bump stocks. However, you had the opposing side that yet said, yes, it is clear but it's clear in a way that obviously machine guns are not included in that definition. So that was kind of the battle that was happening in this case originally and is a big part of this case. And ultimately what the Fifth Circuit en banc panel found is that yes, the definition is clear, but that clear definition does not include bump stocks. So that was kind of one of the first major significant things that kind of is the result of this decision by the Fifth Circuit. Now, one of the other really interesting things they did here, the Fifth Circuit en banc panel, is they didn't just leave their analysis to saying, this is a clear statute, the term machine guns is clear, bump stocks aren't included in that term, therefore, end of story. They actually took it kind of a step further because there were some other arguments presented by our side, the pro-2A side, that was also saying, well, Fifth Circuit en banc panel or whatever court reviews this, let's say that you find that the term machine gun is indeed ambiguous. Maybe there is some sort of uncertainty in that term. If you find that there is some sort of uncertainty in that term, then what you should do is not use Chevron deference, which a lot of anti-gunners would argue for. And Chevron deference means essentially that deference would be given to the administrative agency, the executive agency, the ATF, um, and you would give deference to their interpretation. Instead, what our side would argue is, no, you wouldn't use Chevron deference. You would use a different kind of canon of, of interpretation, and that would be the rule of lenity. And the rule of lenity essentially says that when you are dealing with a statute that has criminal implications, um, then you must decide or the court must decide the case and must interpret the ambiguity in a way that is most lenient to the people, not the agency itself. And that is because the theory behind the legal system and some of these canons is that the legal system is not intended to just punish people all the time. When there's some sort of uncertainty, essentially the tie would go to the runner and the runner being us, the people. And here, the GCA clearly is a criminal statute with criminal statutory implications. You know, you can be hit with a $250,000 fine. You can get put in prison for 10 years. Um, those are severe criminal penalties. You can hit get hit with a felony and become a prohibited person for the rest of your life. And so... 
What the argument was is since that is the case, there are criminal implications with this statute and with this interpretation. You should use the rule of lenity. And here in this decision by the Fifth Circuit, they agreed. They said, yes, even if the statute was is ambiguous, which they don't think it is, they think it's very clear, but they said, even if it is, we are, would use and we are going to apply the rule of lenity, not Chevron deference. And so that's very significant because really at two levels, you have the court here agreeing with us. First, they're saying this is a clear statute under the text. Bump stocks are not included in this definition. But even if we were to buy an argument that this term is ambiguous, we still think you would win because the rule of lenity is in your favor. If the ATF really wants to treat these items to be machine guns, that is not within their authority. They don't get to legislate. Instead, what they would need to do is go to Congress and Congress through our representatives would need to redefine to change the definition of a machine gun so that those items, bump stocks, would be included. That would be the only way to do this. Now, there was some other language within the ruling here of the Fifth Circuit where ultimately what they said they were going to do was they said that, you know, even, and it really comes down to the main discussion here with, with Chevron and rule of lenity, that was important. But they, they also said that they would deny Chevron for multiple other reasons, not just because the rule of lenity applied. And that's a little bit important too. And I haven't really fully flushed that out in other videos. And it also has some significant implications. And that's because they said, first and foremost, there was always this question about whether or not an agency like the ATF could waive Chevron deference. And when I say that they could waive Chevron deference, what that means is when you are litigating a case and you are bringing certain defenses or allegations or, or things like that up in a lawsuit, there are certain rules to where if you do not bring up a certain defense or you do not bring up a certain allegation or you do not bring up some sort of canon here or or legal argument like Chevron, eventually you lose the ability down the road to bring it up. And what the court here said, and there was always a question about whether or not an agency, if they never um, tried to argue that Chevron applied to them, would that mean that they waived that type of argument down the road? I guess that's the easiest way for me to kind of condense this and, and bring this to kind of a lower level. And here the Fifth Circuit en banc panel said that, yes, um, the ATF did not ever present Chevron deference or the rules of, of Chevron. Um, they never brought it up as a way that the court should look at this, and therefore they waived it. Um, so that was also significant because there have been some decisions in the Second Amendment realm and other realms as well where courts have said that, no, you don't waive Chevron, that a court can unilaterally on its own apply Chevron, even if the government never even brings it up. Here, the Fifth Circuit said, nope, um, if the government, like the ATF, doesn't, doesn't bring it up, if they don't try to use it, then they waive the ability down the road. And the courts just can't unilaterally decide, well, I'm, you know, I don't like the way that this is shaking out. I don't like the way that the ATF argued this case, so I'm just going to apply Chevron deference to them and kind of give them the get out of jail card. So that was another very significant, um, you know, aspect to this case that kind of goes overlooked is the Fifth Circuit en banc panel saying that the ATF waived Chevron deference. Another interesting part of this decision that kind of got overlooked by a lot of people, and I didn't get to really go in depth about it in videos because, you know, I'm making a eight minute video, nine minute video, and I'm trying to condense stuff as much as possible. And, you know, I, some stuff has got to get left on the editing floor. But, you know, one of the other things had to do with the inconsistent position of the ATF on this very topic of bump stocks and how that would actually cut against them being imported Chevron deference. And ultimately what the Fifth Circuit said is the ATF has been very inconsistent on this issue of bump stocks, on whether or not they're machine guns or not. In the past, they said that clearly bump stocks are not machine guns. And a lot of people relied on that statement by the ATF. And a lot of people relied on that statement when they bought these items. 
in the same way. We have had the ATF say that frames and receivers, unfinished frames and receivers, 80 percenters are not indeed firearms. And a lot of people relied on those statements. Also on pistol braces, they've made statements about pistol braces. However, then all of a sudden you have the ATF flip-flop whenever they get some sort of political pressure from anti-gun groups like Giffords or Everytown or whoever, or from various administration, presidential administrations. And then they decide, no, forget all of these other statements we've made in the past. Forget all these documents we put out. Forget everything that we've said for 20, 30 plus years. Now we're going to say that these are indeed, here in this case, machine guns. They are unlawful to own. You got to destroy them, turn them over, or else you are a felon. And then they do that overnight. Again, mind you, you know, overnight you become a felon. So here, this aspect of the case looked at what should the court consider or what should the court, how should the court consider that flip-flopping? And ultimately what the Fifth Circuit here said is, this inconsistent position of the ATF going back and forth, you know, left and right, changing positions every single year or whatever, that actually cuts against them be giving them being given deference. Because if they had a consistent position this whole time saying that these items were under the authority of the ATF, that they fell under the definition of a machine gun, that they fell under the clear language of the GCA then maybe there would be more deference given to them. But the fact that they have just been all over the place, essentially you can't trust them. You can't trust their interpretation. So how are you going to give any deference to this new interpretation when they can simply change it tomorrow? So that was also really important because that plays directly into a lot of other issues and lawsuits that are currently going on against the ATF because the ATF is regulating things that in the past they have said are completely lawful. And again, it's really not for them to say what is lawful or not. You know, that is the job of the Constitution, first and foremost, our Bill of Rights. Um, and then also our representatives through Congress passing laws. Um, but again, those laws have to be consistent with the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. So, you know, but it's not the ATF's job to determine what is lawful or not. So that is kind of the quick, kind of a little bit quick, a little bit more in depth, I'm sure, um, impact and a little bit more in depth about what the Fifth Circuit really said in this bump stock decision. There were quite a few things that you can take away from this, similar to how if you were to look at the Bruin decision, you could pull various things out that they were actually saying that would have impacts on cases going forward. For example, like in Bruin, a lot of people cite, you know, this law struck down New York's concealed carry permitting system. And yes, that's very true. They struck down May issue permitting systems, but they did a lot more in Bruin as well. Similar to how the Fifth Circuit did a lot more in this decision than just striking down the bump stock ban. Um, in the Bruin decision, they also very exp expressly clarified that the right to keep and bear arms also extends outside of your home because, you know, there were a ton of states, there were a ton of attorney generals, a ton of circuit courts arguing that the right only existed within your home. Um, and the Supreme Court said, no, that is not the case whatsoever. We all knew that wasn't the case, but you needed the Supreme Court to finally shut down those arguments. Then you also had the Supreme Court striking down the two-step approach, which was also very significant in the Bruin decision. So that all to say that there is a lot more that always goes on with these cases. Sometimes we can't fully flush those out in short, you know, eight-minute videos. We kind of have to give you the biggest main point to take away, and maybe the podcast will be a way we can flush out some of these other kind of ancillary, smaller issues and they're not smaller they are still very significant but things that aren't just like the main headline aspect of a decision so that is kind of the main takeaway of that decision now let's talk about some of the impacts that this decision will have because i know after i put out that video and since this has happened a lot of people have questions about okay what is this going to do going forward for second amendment litigation for the cause going forward so the first thing is obviously it will have an impact on all other ATF 
actions that are similar to what they did with bump stocks. Like I mentioned, they did the bump stocks issue really put the ATS foot in the door for the first time. And then they ran with this process heavily over the last few years in instituting their new rule on frames and receivers, going after force reset, force reset triggers, um, going after homemade suppressors and the looming pistol brace band. So all of those are potentially going to be impacted by this decision by the fifth circuit because the fifth circuit here was very clear about the ATF overreaching its authority and all of these cases, the pistol brace ban, the uh, Vanderstock frames and receivers lawsuit in Texas, the um, frames and receivers stuff, the rare breed trigger, the um, suppress homemade suppressor. Then there's so many more. Um, they all deal with the ATFs of overstep. And so this Fifth Circuit case will likely be cited in a ton of those cases. We are already seeing some movement, especially like in the Vanderstock case. Um, Polymer 80 just filed a lawsuit in a federal district court in Texas. Um, and they're likely going to try to springboard off of this first Fifth Circuit argument. I would not be surprised also in the Vanderstock case if you didn't see this pop up. And I have absolutely no doubt that once the ATF institutes their pistol brace rule that when they are sued, this decision by the fifth circuit will pop up. In fact, I wouldn't have no doubt that the lawsuit will likely be filed in a federal district court in Texas, because you also want that fifth circuit on bonk panel ruling to be controlling precedent over the court that you're in to get that positive determination that you want. And that is just kind of a strategic thing you do um, to win these cases. So, no doubt it's going to impact that. I've had some people ask me if I believe that the ATF will not uh, put in place the pistol brace rule because of this ruling. I don't think so. Um, all indications are that they are going to be introducing that new rule here within the next week. I've heard rumors that they're going to do it literally maybe the day before SHOT Show. As I'm filming this, you know, we are in the week before SHOT Show. Um, I'll be at SHOT Show. Um, that's a whole nother story. Maybe I'll do a wrap-up podcast about SHOT Show. That's always a very interesting event in itself because, um, you know, I, I don't want to go off the rails, especially in this podcast, but one of the larger frustrations I have sometimes with the firearms industry is that just because someone is a gun owner or just because a company makes guns and sells guns, or make some sort of accessory for firearms doesn't necessarily mean they're pro 2A. Um, there are plenty of people in this industry who are not pro 2A. There are plenty of people who are gun manufacturers who are not pro 2A. There are plenty of people I interact with at SHOT Show who are at the largest firearms industry event, and they're not pro 2A. So that's just kind of an aside. But anyways, I'll be at SHOT Show. That was off the rails. Sorry about that. Uh, that's just one of my uh, internal gripes, especially as I've uh, gotten more and more into this industry. And, and, you know, I'm fairly new still to this industry, but I, I think I was a little bit shocked by that truth. Um, but they are planning to likely introduce it before SHOT Show. And I think that'll be probably a big hubbubaloo at SHOT Show. I think everybody will be freaking out about it. But, you know, I we knew it was coming. They kept saying it was it was coming. They were delaying it, delaying it. But I have no doubt that they'll introduce it. And we're going to litigate it. They're going to be sued. Um, and they're going to likely be sued in a district court that it falls under the Fifth Circuit's uh, precedent. And uh, we'll see how that shakes out. Uh, I think... It's very similar to the bump stock issue where you have the ATF issuing guidance letters and documents saying that a pistol brace is clearly legal. It used on a AR pistol or AK pistol is lawful. Um, and then now all of a sudden they're saying, no, well, when you look at the definition of an SBR in the NFA, now we're going to say that an AR pistol with a pistol brace on it is clearly an SBR, you know, but in the past they said contrary. So you can see how that's very similar to what they're kind of doing with or they what they did with bump stocks and what was just struck down with bump stocks. So 
no doubt it's going to be litigated. Um, and I guess the last thing that I want to talk about here in this podcast, or maybe not the last thing, maybe I got a couple more things, but the next thing I want to talk about here is a lot of people have been asking me, what do I think the Supreme Court is going to do? Because a lot of people are likely thinking that obviously the ATF can't let this decision stand. They can't let a decision stand that says that they have overreached their authority, that they do not have the statutory authority to interpret this in this way, and therefore it's struck down, this rule struck down. They can't let that stand. Now, this case is unique because you have a Fifth Circuit en banc panel essentially ruling in our favor, in our favor, the people's favor. So the ATF is in this dilemma. Not only do you have a Supreme Court that obviously is leaning more conservative, um, maybe more pro to way than it's been in a long time. They just issued that Bruin decision last year. Um, so they have that dilemma, but they also have this dilemma of they are going to take a loss that they just suffered at the Fifth Circuit level up to the Supreme Court and tell them, we think the Fifth Circuit got it wrong. Reverse this. They have to make this calculus for a pro to a court, for a right-leaning court, court, a court that just issued a ruling in Bruin, whether or not they think that that court will overrule this decision. Um, and they have to weigh that against them letting this decision stand. Now, ultimately, I think it's kind of not really a decision that they're going to make at all. I think they have to make the decision to take this up to the Supreme Court and kind of let the chips fall where it is, which I love because then you also put the Supreme Court in a dilemma because if you recall, the bump stock issue is this is not the first case that this issue has popped up. The Supreme Court has had maybe four or five, maybe six opportunities since I even started the channel to review this bump stock issue. And every single time, the Supreme Court has kicked those cases. Every single time, the Supreme Court has punted on taking review of those cases. They have denied cert in those cases. Um, the Apostian case is one of them. There was another GOA case last year as well, along with Apostian that were up, which was denied by the Supreme Court. There were, I think, three other ones when I first started my channel that were making their way and were waiting for Supreme Court review, which were ultimately denied as well. Um, but here, with all of those, let me back up a little bit. With all of those, the procedural posture of those wasn't necessarily most favorable to us because all of those had lower court decisions that said the ATF had the power and authority to do what they were doing. So the Supreme Court really wasn't put in a weird position. With this case, now you have the Ombong panel saying the ATF does not have this authority. So when a writ assert is filed up to the Supreme Court by the ATF, if the Supreme Court does not take up that case and just simply denies review, that means that that Fifth Circuit Ombong panel decision is binding, controlling precedent in the Fifth Circuit. Now, it may remain isolated to the Fifth Circuit, but then... You know, that's binding in the Fifth Circuit. That's significant in its own right. But then you have the ability of other circuit courts to then point to that decision and the denial of cert by the Supreme Court as maybe some sort of evidence that they think that that was appropriate. Um, so then the ATF is kind of in that bind. And, and I think really what this ultimately does is it kind of forces the Supreme Court's hand to have to hear this issue. Um, because if they don't, then it's binding precedent in the Fifth Circuit. Um, and I think that they would rather have control of the narrative. Um, and also now there are splits in circuit courts. That's also significant. The Supreme Court loves when there are splits in circuit courts. That's one of the main factors for a Supreme Court to take up an issue is if there's a circuit court split. And now there is, um, you've had various courts at various levels rule, on the bump stock issue and some have found in favor of the ATF. And now you have the fifth circuit on bonk panel saying, no, the ATF was wrong here. So that's also probably intriguing to the Supreme court. Now, with all that being said, 
I definitely don't want to sell this to you as something that will certainly happen. Um, you can never say with a certainty that the Supreme Court is going to do anything. The Supreme Court doesn't have to do anything. Um, they hear, you know, only a handful of cases every single year and thousands of cases are submitted to them every single year. They have complete discretion over their docket. They have complete discretion on what issues and what cases they want to hear. And then it also comes down to, can you get enough votes to grant cert? Um, you know, you need those four votes to grant cert. So the question is maybe if there's even enough justices on the Supreme Court, on the current Supreme Court, that even have an interest in this issue. Um, and we'll see. We'll find out. I have, Like I said, I have no doubt that the ATF is going to have to um, seek a writ of cert to the Supreme Court. And my leaning is probably more towards, I would say maybe I'm 65% sure that the Supreme Court will take up this case. But again, definitely not going to say like there's a certainty that 100% they're going to take this up. I don't think you could ever say that. I mean, with the Supreme Court, they've punted issues for a long time. And I know I, I catch some heat for this because I, I maybe I'm a little bit more pessimistic. But, you know, I, I look at history, you know, after the Heller and McDonald case, Outside of Caetano, which I believe was in uh, 2016, um, the Supreme Court really hasn't heard any Second Amendment cases until Bruin. Um, so there was a 14 to 12 year gap, depending on how you want to count Heller Miller, um, which one, you know, where you want to count from which one. Um, there was a significant gap where the Supreme Court was completely inactive on the topic of the Second Amendment. And I know I've mentioned this before in videos, and I think I mentioned in the last podcast, when it comes to the realm of the Second Amendment and how flushed out this topic really is, um, it's very, it's in its infant stages. Um, I think I've mentioned when I was in law school, the only cases you would ever cover in law school were, um, I think, Miller, Heller, McDonald. That was it. And it would take up all of maybe 20 minutes in your law school class, um, in contrast to things like the First Amendment with freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom of the press, yada, yada, yada. Um, all those, of course, all very important things, but those are that's an area of law, of constitutional law, that is much more flushed out. Uh, due process, much more flushed out. Um, you know, things, things along that, you know, Miranda, right? All those things, much more flushed out. Um, the Second Amendment, you know, outside of 2008, and, you know, there's really not much there. So these, you can't say that the Supreme Court is for sure going to take something up when our history has shown that they tend to issue a big decision, then go dormant for a while. Um, maybe that could have just been, been because of the makeup of the court at the time. Definitely. You know, that definitely is a significant consideration. You know, you're not going to be taking up cases if you can't even get the votes to take up those cases. You know, if it's a, it was, it's been a much in the past, it was much more of a neutral split than what we have now. I know a lot of people are very critical of the justices we have now, but I actually am more positive towards them because I think this is much more of a pro to a court than we've had in the past. When you look at people like Roberts and Kennedy and, and all of them being on the court, you know, I think we have a much better makeup now, obviously. You know, you're never going to replace Scalia. You know, you, Scalia was a significant loss. Um, I'm actually reading a book right now on Scalia, um, which is actually interesting. I think it's called um, Letters Letters from Scalia, something like that. Letters and Letters and um, man, I don't have it in my office. It's I'll find it. I'll, maybe I'll put it in the detail section. But I think it's like Letters and Lectures from Scalia. Very interesting. Um, but yeah, you're never going to replace Scalia, and I think that. You know, but I, you know, I think our court now is much, much better than what we've had in the past. Um, does that again lead to a certainty that they will take up this issue of bump stocks? Definitely not. And I know a lot of people also are are complaining about bump stocks. Like no one cares about bump stocks. Yes, I agree. Out of all the issues that we have out there in the Second Amendment realm, with bans on so-called assault weapons and magazine bans and ammunition restrictions and carry restrictions and nonviolent felon restrictions and, and things like that. 
Um, I would say bump stocks are probably the least of our worries, but it's still a Second Amendment violation. I think it leads to an interesting vehicle to look at what authority does the government really have to regulate various arms protected by the Second Amendment. Sorry, I needed a drink of water. Um, so I think that's why this case is also very important, why it's going to be very impactful going forward. I think you're going to see it's cited to quite a bit, um, you know, in this year and a lot of the lawsuits, I think you're going to see this Cargill case cited quite a bit and it might even be the next significant, you know, two way lawsuit that gets reviewed by the Supreme court. We will have to wait and see. Um, but I, I think there is a strong possibility of that. Um, so, you know, that's just kind of, my thoughts and ramblings on this definitely a little bit more in depth than, you know, what we've talked about in the video on the channel. Um, and you know, I know not everybody is super, super concerned with what goes on at a national level. I know I have a ton of California listeners who maybe think, you know, this doesn't really impact me this much, but it really does because the overarching issue is what type of authority does a agency, a government agency really have over our rights. And as we saw the Supreme Court state in Bruin, you know, it should be very, very clear. You know, what type of laws does, what type of laws can our government actually put in place? Those restrictions that they can put in place should be consistent with the text, history, and tradition of our nation. Um, usually I say relevant history and tradition, and I guess maybe now is a good time to flush out why I say relevant history and tradition. The reason why I say relevant history and tradition, it's kind of just a short form of me saying the only history and tradition that matters is that history and tradition dating back to 1791, like the Supreme Court said in Bruin. Now, <clears throat> I know some people also say that this is a new test, that Bruin instituted a new test, which is text as informed by history and tradition. Um, I'm very contrary to that. To me, it's not a new test. Um, that test was included in Heller. It was included in McDonald. And it was one of the tests we've, uh, we used to operate on under very clearly until all of a sudden you had rogue Ninth Circuit courts and other liberal uh, circuit courts decide that they wanted to try to narrow and restrict the Heller and McDonald decision from down below. And that is something that happens quite often. And, and also, I think that's an interesting point to talk about here is, you know, we've seen that even more recently with after, you know, with the Bruin decision and after the Bruin decision. Immediately, you had states like New York, New Jersey, and California say that they were going to try to try to find end arounds of the Bruin decision. And they were trying to say that they found these, you know, little loopholes of sensitive location. And um, yes, it has to be shall issue, but we can put all these restrictions on your shall issue permits and good moral character standard instead of proper cause. And really that's just a way for them to try to narrow from down below. And their hope was that when courts like the second circuit or the Ninth Circuit took up these cases that they would then try to narrow death from down below, that they would say that, you know, Bruin stood for X, Y, and Z, but that was the overarching, we found this little hole here and here where this law is appropriate and just tried to constrain it from down below. And that's originally what the Ninth Circuit and some of these other circuits did with the two-step approach. They tried to say that, um, even under Heller and McDonald, the two-step approach, two approach was appropriate, which is also interesting because if you read the dissent in Heller, um, you had Justice Breyer advocating for the two-part approach, the two-step approach, and the use of intermediate scrutiny. And that's a dissent, which means it was clearly rejected by the majority of the court. So how could it be that that was an appropriate test when it was rejected by the majority. So that's just an aside kind of with Heller too, with some of these arguments you see pop up quite a bit 
and litigation and, and even just when you're having a general discussion with people about the Second Amendment, they might argue things like that about what Heller really said. Um, and I think Heller, although not a perfect decision, did have all these concepts in it. Um, it just was a lot of these lower courts decided that they did not want to adhere to that decision. Um, and candidly, the Supreme Court, you know, let them get away with it. Let them get away. They, they lot, let them get away with it for 12, 14 years until now, until they issued the Bruin decision. And we will now see how aggressive the Supreme Court really wants to be. Um, is the Supreme Court going to now issue a slew of Second Amendment decisions uh, similar to how they have done in other areas of constitutional law? Um, are they going to start to really flush out these topics and stop the government overreach? Um, are they going to do that here with the Cargill case by identifying that the ATF does not have this authority? Are they going to also do that with the state of New York's defiance of their Bruin decision. Um, as I'm filming this today, we got the decision from the Supreme Court saying that they will not grant emergency review in the Antioch case. Now, that wasn't a decision on the merits of whether the Concealed Carry Improvement Act was constitutional or not. Um, I know, I mean, I saw statements from the Attorney General Letitia James where she was saying, Oh, the Supreme Court ruled in our favor. This was a huge win. Um, they upheld the CCIA, which is so false. I mean, even if you just read the order um, from the court, they expressly say this is not a decision on the merits of the case. This is a simply us saying that we will give the Second Circuit a second shot, another chance to do the right thing and rule in the appropriate way. And if they don't, and if they don't do that fast, then GOA, GOA is the one who filed that lawsuit, uh, then GOA come back to us and we'll take care of it. Now, why they're giving them another chance is beside me. Um, it may not, some people may take from that that that's not a good sign. I, I'm kind of in the middle on it. Um, I think a lot of the times you have courts and judges and, and justices who um, would rather have the process work out the way it was intended and then deal with it when it gets to them in the traditional manner instead of stepping in prematurely. And my kind of feeling was that the Supreme Court wasn't going to try wasn't going to step in prematurely. I think it's much more likely that this works its way through the traditional process. And when it gets to the Supreme Court on a traditional docket system um, after it's been litigated at the Second Circuit level, at the Second Circuit en banc level, and then makes it way its way up to the Supreme Court on a cert petition, I think then it's much more likely that they will take up that. And I think they're going to have to, um, you know, they're going to have to eventually hear the CCIA issue in some way. They're going to have to issue a ruling on the CCIA. There is no way that they cannot. Um, and because it's not just New York, it's New Jersey. And now California is prompting once again that they are going to try to pass their version of this law. Um, again, all in direct defiance to that NYSERPA decision. So that's kind of just my thoughts, um, my stream of consciousness when it comes to the Fifth Circuit's en banc panel decision in Cargill, that bump stock case, uh, what that really meant, some important language in it, and what impact it may have going forward, and what maybe the landscape will look like now as a result of that. Um, Hopefully that was a little bit enlightening to you guys. I know sometimes it's just a stream of consciousness and that's really kind of going to be the goal with these podcasts is just give me an opportunity to talk a little bit more about these topics, a little bit more about my thoughts about this stuff. Um, and a lot of other topics, like you said, I mean, like you heard, you know, I went on a ramble about SHOT Show. Um, I love SHOT Show. Um, I've only been there one time. It was always kind of a cool goal once I started the YouTube channel to get to go to SHOT Show. I've met a ton of great friends because of SHOT Show. Um, the first time I met Braden from Lingley Outdoors was at this last year's SHOT Show. We've all become friends since then. Um, we talk pretty much daily in a group chat. Um, it's Actually, if you guys want some inside the baseball, yeah, the, the group chat we have uh, is between me, Braden, 
and Jared from Guns and Gadgets. We pretty much talk every day, and it's called Gun News Bros. Um, actually, for a while, we had talked about doing a podcast, all three of us together, but um, it's all three of our schedules are just so insane that it's probably next to impossible. But my hope is to have them all on. I'm planning to have Jared on. I'll have Braden on and a lot of other people that I've met um, just to kind of maybe give you guys a little bit more informal discussion on some of their thoughts on these topics um, and a lot of other things that are happening in the world of the Second Amendment and the gun community. Um, I'm hoping that 2023 is a year that I can kind of build out a more deep relationship with you guys who listen, who support the channel. Because uh, I know sometimes, you know, in the videos, uh, um, you know, you don't get the full understanding of who I am, what I think. Um, because again, we're trying to condense things down into an eight minute, you know, nine minute video that you can watch when you wake up or put on real quick on your lunch break or whatever it is. Uh, a lot of people always tell me that, Hey, I watch you in bed or I watch you when I'm in the bathroom, which I mean, I don't really care. You watch me. You watch me. It's just always kind of strange when I meet people in person, they're like, Oh yeah, I always watch you when I'm in bed with my wife or I watch you when I'm in the bathroom. Um, which I get, I've watched a ton of YouTube when I'm also in bed, watch a lot of my friends, YouTube channels. Uh, when, you know, I'm about to go to sleep, I'll, I'll watch what, you know, stuff that they put up. Um, so I get it, but, uh, that's kind of the goal with the podcast is to just give you guys a deeper understanding of kind of how I think about these things. And then also, yeah, like I said, bring on some really cool people and that you guys can hear some of their stream of consciousness now. So that's what I'm going to talk. That's what I'm kind of talking about here in this podcast. Um, you know, I appreciate all the support you guys have shown me for the podcast. The first one, you know, did a lot better than I thought, to be honest. I didn't, I don't know what I thought would happen, but you guys were absolutely amazing. I think on the second YouTube channel, the podcast that I put up there got like 9,000 views on its own, which is pretty crazy considering I only have like 3000 subscribers over there. So it got more watches than it does even subscribers over there. So I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, if you guys appreciate this or you maybe have ideas of other topics you would maybe like me to talk about, uh, let me know down in the comment section if you're watching this on YouTube. Um, if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple podcast, I would really appreciate if you guys left a review, if you, you know, rate, rated the podcast five stars, you know, cause I allegedly that stuff helps the algorithm over on those platforms. Um, the review and the, you know, star review. So if you could do that, I really appreciate that. And if you're on YouTube, of course, like comment, subscribe, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, also just let me know down below what type of topics or maybe what guests you guys would like me to uh, talk to with here on the podcast because I maybe don't know of someone. Um, I know pretty much everybody within the community um, in some form, but maybe there's someone out there that I've just never heard of or never met or anything like that. So yeah, appreciate your guys' support. Thank you so much for the podcast, listening to the podcast. Um, and as always, thank you all for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And never forget, this nation was built by armed scholars, and this nation will be maintained by armed scholars.